This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. John Lamb. Hello, mate. How are you? Good morning, Spence, <laughs> and welcome to Talk Back Gardening on Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's one of those Saturdays where the plants are going to say, they're going to take a... A big breath because it's a stinker today and we've got 39 degrees on Tuesday. It looks like our first mini heat wave for the season. I don't think we're going to get a, a fully-fledged heat, a heat wave even this season, not even this week. Do you realise that uh, we have yet to crack 40 degrees no. this summer? Mm. We've only had three days in December and January over 35 which is most unusual. I mean, February historically can be quite hot as well when the kids go back to school. So uh, we need to touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I go by Darren Ray, the climatologist, yes. and he said, and he's spot on, he sort of said, well, uh, we'll have our hottest weather at the end of January. Goodness gracious, it's going to happen. Yeah. And then he said, we'll also have some more hot weather in early February, and then probably it'll start to fade. We'll end up with an Indian summer. Hmm. I don't think too many people are too happy with the fact that it's been relatively mild this season. Okay, the old tomatoes are a bit slow off the mark and the cucumbers are not sort of uh, setting properly. But most gardens, I think, would rather mild weather Mm -hmm. than heat wave weather. 100%. I think uh, it's going to be uh, fascinating. But I just thought that because we're going to have a heat spike and maybe uh, a mini heat wave next week uh, or this coming week, I thought maybe we might take a look at heat-beating plants. Back in 2004, uh, 2014, and you uh, remember that one pretty well, I do believe. Yes, I do. Yes, yeah, no, it, it was f- 10 days over 40 degrees. And during that, at the end, there, were a lot, there was a lot of plants damage, very serious damage. So I carried out a survey, a fairly extensive survey of landscapers and garden suppliers and uh, uh, horticulturalists, and we came up with a list of 10 plants which are heat beaters. And I thought this morning we might revisit that list and talk to three horticulturalists, and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, Mediterranean plants, we're going to take a look at wow plants, and also Australian plants during this morning's program. But what we want are people to send in their nomination of a heat-beating plant. Okay. All right. Well, um, it's eight past eight. We'll, we'll go through those lists. We'll, sort of, we'll, we'll let you know when you're going to go through that list and we'll talk to the experts. But we should take some calls. The lines are open, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. If you have any questions for John Lamb, here is your opportunity. Jump on the phone now. Uh, in fact, Mark at Port Neal, oh, Port Neal, what a spot, um, has what I suspect is not an uncommon problem this year. G'day, Mark. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. So John's listening. Um, yeah, I've got um, uh, cherry tomatoes. Um, I've got heaps of them, but they're all green. So do I have to put red dye somewhere? <laughs> I think all you need is patience there, Mark. Two factors at work. One is temperature and the other one yep. is sunlight. And uh, we're getting a reasonable amount of sunlight, probably not as much as we would in a normal season. Um, But it's the temperatures, and I mentioned before we've yet to crack 40 degrees, but it's the temperatures in that 28 to 32 degrees. That really does ripen up the tomatoes. And uh, I think we've only had about three or four days this summer above 35. And so... (laughs) The plants are saying, uh, righto, we're happy growing 
and we might flower and we're producing fruits, but it's the uh, a combination of those two factors coming together that will give you uh, the ripeness you're looking for. Just be patient. Okay. I'm pretty certain that uh, you will uh, find that they'll start to ripen up uh, fairly well. At what stage of maturity okay, are, of them, they? Uh, are they? Oh, a, lot of them, a lot of them, yeah, I mean, they're all different sizes, but a lot of them are big, uh, fairly, well, like nearly golf ball size, and they're green, and um, a lot of them are starting to get... Uh, rotten on the bottom. Oh, blossom and rot. Okay, Oy. that's that's because uh, well, the the main factor there is uneven watering. They're getting stress, uh, and that, okay. th- that also affects the plant's ability to be able to uh, uh, ripen itself or the fruit to, to become ripe. What happens is uh, uh, the, the blossom end rot is a, a lack of calcium, and the calcium doesn't move very fast in the plant. So calcium is in the soil. The roots are trying to take it up and push it into the plant and into the fruit. And if you get uh, dry conditions, uh, the, the sap stops flowing and so the calcium's not moving and you get a deficiency. And the plant says, righto, we've got to put calcium where it's most important and that's in the growing uh, tips of the plant, uh, the leaves and, and, and the, the tips up there. And so instead of going into the fruit, uh, it goes into the growth and as a result, you get the black bottoms on your tomatoes. Even watering will overcome that problem. Early in the season, using gypsum, which has got a fair amount of calcium in it, uh, putting a, cal- a gypsum on your, your toma- into your soil before you actually get them established uh, is also a good way of making sure you don't get blossom in rot. But I think just be patient in terms of uh, temperatures, and I'm pretty certain that those tomatoes will ripen. Uh, good luck, Mark, because that is frustrating. When did you put them in, Mark? Oh, um, a few months ago, I can't remember. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I use rainwater. Does that matter? Because that wouldn't have calcium in it, would it? No, it doesn't, but uh, there's not too much calcium in the water that we drink. It might be a smidge in there, but uh, that's not a factor. Um, and people think, oh, well, it's lack of calcium. I'll put lime on them. But the lime takes ages to be broken down into a form that the plant can take in. And even then, when it's in the soil in a form that's available, uh, it takes ages to get from the root system into where it's needed, into the fruits. And so uh, if you've just got nice, even watering, you've got a nice flow of calcium going through the plant all the time, you won't have blossom and rot. Mark, uh, good luck with that and enjoy Port Neal. It's a lovely spot. Thank you, mate. Uh, John's at Hillier Park near Gawler. G'day, John. Oh, g'day, John. How are you? Good. <coughs> What's the problem uh, the, My there? question is, um, I've picked all my fruit now off of my apricot and plum trees, and um, I've got the apricot and plum estaliated. When do I prune them? Right, well, you can do that probably uh, after this little heat spike, or maybe I'd wait until after the second heat spike. Um, it's quite likely we'll get some hot weather in that February period. If you can uh, prune them without exposing uh, the main branches to uh, direct sunlight, you can do it. Um, if you're going to do summer pruning, you should do it as, as relatively as soon as possible, um, certainly before we get uh, well into autumn. Um, and so... We're, 
it's important, I think, that you do that. Uh, just look at the weather forecasts and say, right, we've got a, a week of relatively mild weather. I'll do it then at the beginning of that cool spell. And if we do get uh, one of those heat spikes and we're going to get a number of days in over 40, uh, just be prepared to put a little bit of shade over the plants that if you have uh, uh, chopped off a little bit. But you don't have to uh, chop them back too much. You're taking off the tip growth and encouraging side growth. That's the most important thing. Uh, well, that's, okay, on, that, that's on the plum or the apricot? Oh, both of them. Uh, both of them? Yeah. Uh, could I just mention, uh, John, okay, people are starting to pick up the fact that it's important to summer prune, and if you summer prune, uh, that prevents the plant from uh, getting too vigorous and you don't have to give it a short back and sides during winter, which is the worst thing you can do because that encourages it to produce more vigour. So uh, summer pruning is important, but just as important, you'll find that the commercial fruit growers, after harvest, they feed their trees. They fertilise their fruit trees because that's the time where the buds for next year are forming and that helps determine how many fruits you're going to get next year and the size of next year's fruit. So fertilise your trees after harvest, so make sure the soil's nice and moist, put the fertiliser on, not too much, and then water it into the root system and you'll be surprised at the difference that makes in cropping. Ah, there you go. I I think a problem of mine has just been solved. John, thank you. Thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye for now, because my, I'm, I'm four years into a satsuma and um, got a great harvest last year, but hardly any this year, which I put down to wind blowing the blossom off when they were just about to set. Yes, we mm. had uh, like a kind of a spring where if you get showery weather, you get a little fungal disease, yeah. you can get uh, too much wind or you can get frost, a number of things that can give you uh, problems. You need to watch, De- uh, 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 Spence, you don't get by on your bearing. You've got a light crop this year, you'll have a heavy crop next year. Next year, when you've got the, the fruits are about cherry size and you've got lots of them there, thin the crop. And if you do that, that will mean that the following season you'll get a reasonable crop. If you leave a heavy crop on next season and you don't thin, you'll take all the energy out of the tree and the following season you'll go back to hardly any fruit. Well, well we, we, <laughs> we know exactly what I've done then, don't we? Uh, we'll, we'll go through your, your heat-hardy plants shortly. Might just squeeze in one more call from Jean at, to Victor Harbour. Morning, Jean. Oh, good morning. Um, I have a problem with a uh, lemon tree about six months planted, purchased from a very reputable um, fruit and nut place, um, it sort of decided to flower a lot. There were flowers everywhere. The leaves have all fallen off it, and now it's just a bare tree. That's not very nice. That doesn't sound good. No. Okay. Well, (laughs) 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 Uh, is it in... uh, What kind of preparation did you do, and and what kind of a location is it? Sure. So it's got sun pretty much all day. Uh, the soil is exceptionally sandy where we are. Yes. I prepared it by putting about a wheelbarrow load of uh, homemade compost in there. So I dug a large hole, put the compost in, and then put the tree in. Been using the technique of fertilising it once a month with a small, you know, amount of fertiliser. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's that. And it, like the flowers were just incredible. They were everywhere, and. Um, I thought, oh, this is looking good. But then the, the leaves just started to, like, I don't know, dry out or something like that, and then they just disappeared. They just, you go out there and you touch them and they fall off. Right so I've now, I have now sort of run my hand over the branches and all of the flowers have come off, this, so there's nothing on there at all. I'm sort of hopefully waiting for the leaves to, to appear, but so far there's nothing. It's just a little um, 
bits where the where the flowers were. Okay. And uh, that's it. Even watering will be your solution. And if we get some really hot weather, uh, putting some shade cloth, even if you just put an old towel over the tree on a, a 40 degrees day uh, so that you don't end up with the bark uh, being burnt. Without leaves, uh, the bark is exposed. If it gets burnt, it won't recover. So uh, look after the bark. And then uh, I suspect that uh, when, you, when you buy a, a tree, often um, it, it's been in a small container. And so uh, the roots are contained and the tree thinks, oh, right, oh, well, I better start flowering and sending some up some fruit. You take it out of its container and you put it in the ground and all of a sudden it says, oh, well, things are different. But... What often happens is the root ball, let's sort of say it's 20 centimetres across, you put it in the ground and you think, oh, the, I've prepared the soil, it's lovely, it's sandy, it's lots of organic matter there. But when you water, uh, first of all, well, in fact, tell me, how did you actually water the, the, the plant, Jane? Uh, so I've made a, uh, a, like a moat around it, about maybe uh, 60 centimetre moat, and uh, fill her up with water. And because it's sandy, I water it quite frequently. Okay. I like it, frequently being maybe every two days. All yeah. right. Okay. The, the point I was going to make is often uh, people, when they water a new plant, uh, they've, they've got the, the moat round there, but they're watering the outside area where there are no roots. And it's tremendously important in the first two or three weeks that you put the water very close to the trunk. You don't do that normally once it's one established, but you'll find that all of the roots are concentrated in that 20 centimetre wide uh, 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 root mass. And, and <laughs> if you don't put the water there, uh, it goes from uh, very wet to very dry in that area. Uh, so I'm not too sure exactly what's happened there, but I'm pretty certain that it's the, the way the plant is being uh, uh, treated I, I would presume you haven't put on a whole heap of fertiliser. No, no, I've used the... Um, I can't remember yeah, the you mentioned, that goes yeah. on with Sophie, but yeah. yeah. Um, he uh, he says to give it like a, a small amount every month. That's right. Um, that's, yeah. That was his technique. Uh, uh, um, yeah, my, my impression was uh, um, the hormones or something have just gone, oh, you, we've got a flower uh, at the expense of everything. Uh, I don't know, but that seemed what it was like because you could not see the branches. It was just flowers all over it, and uh, I didn't know whether to pull them off or what. You know, yeah, that just, would have uh, been the best thing is to pull all the flowers. What you need to do is get it back into growth. So you've done the right thing, get rid of all the flowers, um, and uh, then uh, just, just uh, protect the bark, uh, make sure you're watering evenly, um, okay, so you're supposed to water uh, fertilise once a month, but there's not much of a root system there. I would hold off on the fertiliser until probably you can see that you've got good, strong, steady growth. At that stage, you can go into your once a month growth, but uh, if there's no growth there, it's not able to take up the fertiliser, and you're putting a little bit of fertiliser, but if it's not being used, it just concentrates, so there may be a, a concentration of fertiliser problem. It, it often happens to citrus. It takes ages, sometimes two seasons before they really take off and then once they do then you're in but getting them from a container into the garden and into new growth sometimes can be a bit tricky good luck with that gene i had to try three times before i had a lemon that produced any fruit so and i just kept changing locations eventually <laughs> i got there this is talk about gardening with john lamb and spence Denny. on abc radio adelaide south australia and broken hill there's nothing like a little spike of heat early in the growing season to focus our mind on plants that thrive in the heat, which are the heat beaters. 
and uh, when you get over 40 degrees you can actually have uh, considerable damage to uh, a number of plants but there are heat beaters out there and 10 years ago we carried out a survey uh, 2014 was the year of uh, 10 days over 40 degrees and we carried out a survey of which are the plants which are the heat beaters and the replies we got from garden centres and nurseries and things like that I'll just give you the top five Maria, Maria, very very tough Bougainvilliers Crepe Myrtle, Oleanders, and Westringers. Okay, that was the top five back in 2014. We're going to revisit that and take a look at it from the point of view of three horticulturalists, and we'll see how many of those are still on the list and should we add to the list. And let's start by looking at wow plants. Wow plants are those things that you you pay sometimes $15 for a wow plant, take it home, and then after 12 months <laughs> you say, well, that was fun, but uh, we won't try that again. There are other plants, though, that survive, and they're, they're the traditional ones, and we're going to talk to Brett Draper. Brett, we talk to often uh, he often does uh, the program that I'm doing but uh, Brett uh, has his uh, garden centre manager hat so good morning to you Brett Good morning, John. Morning, Spence. Morning, so, Brett. So let's, uh, yeah, let's let's take a look at uh, what you would put at uh, the top of your list of wow plants that are still there after many years of, of, of hot weather. Mm, yeah, John. Well, so I'm in a fortunate situation where I see lots of plants come through and how they perform in the heat. Um, and uh, one in particular that I really, really like and does exceptionally well is a bougainvillea, but it's a, a dwarf bougainvillea or a bambino bougainvillea. So it's a non-climbing variety. It only grows to about 1, 1. 1.5 metres, and it is ideal for containers, for instance, um, and particularly in a really hot situation. So maybe a container on a balcony or a um, courtyard, those really hot sort of situations. What makes they, it a heat-tolerant plant? Well, it's it's really a heat-tolerant plant, John, because of where it actually they originate from. So they originate from, you know, the northern parts of South America, so where it's quite warm and often quite humid as well. So they do very well, particularly when we have humid conditions. But it's, it's because it comes um, from those hot, dry climates normally. Okay, so we need to, uh, I'm just watching the time. Um, so your second plant, and uh, don't ask me to spell this next one. <laughs> Look, my second plant, John, is Chrysocephalum. So Chrysocephalum Desert Flame is the cultivar. So remember now, the, is, na the name to remember is Desert Flame. Desert Flame, Desert okay. Flame, correct. Now this is actually an Australian native, but it's a little low-growing Australian native with with a beautiful silver grey foliage and it comes up um, with flowers about 10-15 centimetres tall which are about a button size which are an absolute beautiful gold uh, masses of gold flowers um, and so it's a really really nice little ground cover it will cascade over the edge of say a, a retaining wall or a rock you could also plant it in a container it will cascade over the edge of, of, um, of a pot as well and the good thing is when it starts a little, little, little bit shabby after flowering, you just need to prune it, prune off those dead flowers, give it a, a, a fertilise and it will come back and flower again for you. Desert flame is that plant that uh, the Brett is describing and I would say here, here, and it's one of those plants that people plant it and say, oh, it's a tough thing and walk away and leave it and it looks a bit scungy. But if you give it a little bit, just an occasional watering during summer, it makes a big difference, Brett. 
It does, absolutely. Now, look, all of these plants, John, it's really important, particularly in their first summer, that they do get some or get more watering than what they would in future summers. It's really important that you get their roots established, a nice, healthy, deep root system um, in the actual soil. And then once they're established, just the occasional water during summer will mean that they will pull through beautifully. Okay, so that's bad dwarf bougainvilleas, the bambinos, uh, desert mm-hmm. flame, the chrysocephalum, chrysocephalum, and if you want to spell it, it's C-H-R-Y-O-C-E-P-H-A-L-U-M, chrysocephalum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anyway, you got uh, it. The, the, the next one is probably not much easier in terms of spelling, but it's a bottler. <laughs> yes, that's right. So the, my, next, my next suggestion would be Tucrium, and Tucrium fruticans, but in particular there's a newer cultivar on the market called Silver Box. So unlike your normal Tucrium, and a lot of people might know them as a, as a tree germander, and they'll get sort of a reasonable size. They'll grow to 1.5 metres or even more. But your silver box only grows to about one metre tall. Um, and it is a really lovely plant. Again, it has got a sort of a bluey, silvery grey foliage, small foliage, but beautiful blue flowers. And it's a plant that can you can actually use um, as a hedge. It will actually hedge really, really lovely. And it tolerates the heat exceptionally well because of that silver grey foliage and the fact that it's got small foliage on the actual plant. And those, uh, are, those are the factors that give it its, its tolerance to heat. It's t- correct, its tolerance to heat, absolutely. It does have a slightly larger growing uh, cousin as well on the market, which is silver and sapphire, and that one has beautiful deep sapphire flowers, and either I think there's nothing like a real sapphire blue flower in the garden. It looks spectacular, particularly if you use it as a staging plant, if you like it. You have it behind... Uh, where you've got lower plants growing in front, it really highlights the lower plants growing in front with that contrast. Brett, could you describe uh, a tucrium? Many people uh, probably have heard the name, but not too sure. You, you gave a, a, a bit of a description, but uh, just, just, just uh, it's, it's a plant sitting in the garden. What would it look like? Yeah, well, it's, so it's a, it's a Mediterranean-type plant, John. So when it sits in, in the garden, the larger growing varieties have sort of got almost like a uh, a wiry type a growth habit to them and they have these little leaf junctions that come off the side with small little flowers but when you tip and so if you leave it unpruned it actually gets quite quite sort of loose and open and in sort of a plant but if you tip prune it it thickens up and it forms quite a nice dense little plant um so it, it's it's really good um from that perspective in that because it doesn't have that large foliage, it doesn't lose a lot of moisture through there, and that's what gives it its drought tolerance. It almost, it almost looks a little... I've just looked it up, Brett. It almost looks a bit lavender-like. It does in a little bit of a way, yes, mm. yeah, but the foliage is a little bit smaller, but it's those sort of colours. They're mm. the sort of colours that you can get out of it. It's a very useful plant, and it's also... I mean, it's a heat beater, takes the full sun, but it's also uh, not too bad in semi-shade, uh, Brett. Yes, correct, absolutely. So it is It is very versatile in that respect. Just one other final comment before I leave you. We've been talking on the program about the importance of having some protection, so like some sunscreen, and it's called drought shield. How important is that during very hot weather? Oh, John, I think, it, I think it's a necessity, really. If you've got plants particularly which have larger foliage, so things like viburnums, hydrangeas, magnolias, those type of, of heat-sensitive plants where they have a large leaf which absorbs the heat on a really, really stinking hot day. That's when most damage occurs. If you apply a transparent light drought shield to the leaves before the heat, ideally, 
Um, it is just like a sunscreen that you apply to your skin. It will help reduce the moisture loss out of the leaf and protect it from burning. Um, and that can be the difference between you having a plant which is undamaged um, to one that looks pretty terrible after a really hot day. How would it go on seedlings? Many people will be wanting to put the basil in because it grows quite well during the hot, hot weather. Would you use it on basil and herbs? Yeah, look, you you you, you can you can use it on seedlings as well. That there are, I mean, you need to remember that it is a um, it is a, a polymer which goes over the leaf. So if you are going to use it on there, you need to wash them before you actually uh, consume them. Um, but it will protect them, particularly if they're young plants. Um, you can certainly put that onto the leaves, and it will protect them. If they're fast-growing plants, however, um, you'll need to, you'll find that the um, the, the as the leaf grows, the polymer doesn't stretch as quick as quickly as what the, the leaf can, if that makes sense. So you would have to apply a little, a little bit more often should we have continued hot weather. Brett Draper, wonderful information. Great horticulturalist, manager of one of our garden centres, organiser of the uh, big display at the Royal Show. Look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you, John. Hey, Thanks, the Brett, I'm sorry, before you go, mate. I'm sorry, yes. I, I've got to ask. <laughs> you, you may not remember. What, you, you sold me a, a drought-tolerant plant in 2015. Uh and I was trying to describe it to John. It's got these little little pinky flowers on it. Do you remember? Mm, I'm sorry, Spencer. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they're doing beautifully. <laughs> I am so I am so pleased to hear that. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure where that conversation. Was no, 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 no. They're they're a good thing. In fact, my my brother um, who lives in the Blue Mountains, he he came to my place and saw them. So oh, I got some of those. What are they called? I wouldn't have a clue. Go see Brett. Well, Ben, <laughs> Spence, what you need to do is take a photo and, yeah. and either bring it in or put it on the line, and then we can take a look and. Say right up. Here's a Spence Denny special. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't. It's a it's a Brett special. I'll, I'll I'll bring one into you sometime during the week, Brett. All right. Sounds good. Thank okay, you. Mate. Okay. See you. Brett Draper, uh, horticulturist and manager of a big garden centre. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Uh, Naomi said she got three of the five drought-tolerant heat plants. I missed the last two. Can you remind Naomi of what they were, please, John? Oh, Do you right OK, so, right Well, I mean, we've got Maria, Bougainvilliers, and that was the one that was on uh, Brett's list, Crape Myrtle, Oleander, and Westringer. And very shortly, we're going to talk to Marilyn Kuschel, who's uh, a specialist on Mediterranean plants. I'll be interested to see how many of her nominations are on that particular list. Mm. And look, just a question about the dwarf bougainvillea as well. You may not know the answer to this, but is it a thorny one? Because bougainvillea tend to be thorny, don't they? Some of them have much fewer thorns than others. It depends on how they were selected, but you'll find that often those little dwarf ones don't have... uh, They might have one or two little small... uh, thorns on them, but not like the big ones. And interesting, uh, okay, people are familiar with the great big vigorous bougainvilleas, and Mm. they can be very, very vicious in terms of their thorns, and people say, oh, I love the colour, but I I don't like them. There is also, apart from the bambinos, which only grow, as Brett said, up to about a metre, lovely in containers, but there are semi-dwarf ones as well, and they'll grow a metre, metre and a half, and they're beautiful growing on little uh, little, uh, uh, small... uh, 
trellises and things like that, and again, they'll grow adapt very well to a container. Okay. If you've got a courtyard garden, a nice sunny courtyard garden, what I'd be doing is putting in a, a semi-dwarf bougainvillea in a fairly large container, once it's established, in a container probably about 30 centimetres wide, but then I'd putting that container, that's in a black container, I'd be putting that into a larger, more attractive container, and it's the double uh, containers that give you that extra protection from the sun because it's when the sun beats down on the side of the container if the sun is 40 degrees if you put your thermometer into the container uh, next to uh, the the, uh, uh, the wall of the container you'll find that the temperature the sunlight is, is, is sun temperature is 40 degrees and the soil or the potting soil is 60 degrees mm. now at 40 degrees the growing tips on plants die so you've got to be able to keep the potting mix cool and one way of doing that is double potting put your smaller pot inside a bigger pot and in the full sun you'll find you can get away with it yeah kind of like double glazing it's um it makes sense doesn't it uh, let's take some calls one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number to call for talk about gardening i want to ask you at some stage if we get time john because when, in in my garden if i see on a hot day i see trees start or plants starting to look a bit sad i hose them down and i wonder about the that how if that's wise or not. But anyway, we'll get to that if we can. Uh, but Richard's on the phone from Hyde Park. G'day, Richard. Yes, good morning, Spence. Good morning, John. Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we are discussing weeds. And then we sort of became more interested in thinking, I wonder if there's somewhere in Adelaide where there's a lecture or a workshop where people can learn more about weeds and their, their sort of colouring benefits or alternative benefits, that uh, things that we put in compost otherwise. Interesting topic. I'm not aware of uh, a site that does specialise in that, but there are people out there that are very interested in weeds, and uh, it's surprising the number of weeds that you can actually eat. Um, You can find uh, on the website uh, uh, pages of information. Some of it is more reliable than others, but um, I'd put that one out to listeners, Mm. Spence. Uh, If you are aware of a good website or a good authority on weeds and can help identify which garden weed it is and whether it's edible or whether it may be toxic to uh, the dogs and cats, that would be very valuable. Mm. I guess weeds, by definition, are a plant that you don't want being prolific in your garden. Curiously, when I lived in North Queensland, I think I've told you this story before, um, you could buy pots of dandelions. (laughs) (laughs) well i mean people actually do grow weeds Mm. i mean mean, people walk into my front garden and there are pots with grass growing and people say what are you growing grass for but i've got two little dogs that love eating grass Ah. so you know i've just put some grass seed you can actually buy uh, grass seed for dogs and cats it grows very, very readily. It just grows like, you know, a wheat or a barley or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just have it in a great big pot, in a 40-centimetre wide pot. I've got two of them because I've got two dogs. Mm. <laughs> when I had one, it didn't work. No. <laughs> one was bossing the other one out. Anyway, but, but yeah, I mean, and they have their little munch of, of the grass, you know, every day, uh, and, and they're quite happy. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, coming back to your point, you know, and, and many people do, they grow grasses to eat, and, and, and there are a large number of the leaves of different kind of uh, weeds, which they add to a salad and just add a little bit of a, a, a special spice or a bitter or whatever it might be, but you need to know exactly which ones are the probably quite safe to eat. All right. Well, good luck with that, Richard. Um, thanks, for the, thanks for the question. It's, um, what's it? I can't see the time. There it is. It's a 22 to 9. You're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide. Uh, look, Jennifer had a question about the, the, the heat-tolerant, drought-tolerant plants and wants to know, is there a specific soil profile that is better for the plants that you've described, i.e. alkaline, acidic, uh, and these drought-tolerant plants? Well, what the, do they tend to grow in? Well, I, let's put, say it this way. The plants which are being nominated by our three guests this morning and yeah. those on our list are ones that have tolerated and also survived well in South Australia. And if we take it that most, a big percentage of South Australia soil is relatively on the heavy side rather than the sandy side, and it's also on the alkaline side rather than uh, uh, the acid side. So all of these plants, uh, and again, simply because they are survivors, you'll find that their tolerance to both acidity, acidity and, and alkalinity is, is pretty good. Obviously, they won't take very uh, uh, acid soil or very, very alkaline soils. But uh, certainly, uh, if we take a look at those Moraes, Bougainvilliers, Crape Myrtles, Oleanders and West Stringers, they will take sort of up to eight, eight and a half in, uh, degrees in alkalinity. And uh, in terms of acidity, you know, you could go down to sort of six and you, you wouldn't have too much of a problem. And most of the soils in South Australia would certainly would be between, okay. say, six and a half and sort of around about eight. All right. Um, Joyce is on the phone from Littlehampton, has a question about her Fijoa tree. Hello, Joyce. Joy. Oh, Joy is. I'm sorry, Joy. That's all right. Um, yes, um, we've had a Fijoa tree that's been in the ground for probably about six years, and um, it gets very robust flowers. And, and, and I've sent you a picture, actually, um, of just this sort of like a miniature tiny fruit. Um, but... They, they all seem to fall off. And that can be very, very frustrating, can't it, Joy? <laughs> it sure can. <laughs> right. How big do the fruits get before they drop? Um, oh, very tiny, about about a centimetre maybe at the most. Oh, righto. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's a pollination problem, I would presume. Um, so, and it's happening year after year? Yes. Right. So uh, there's more than just pollination. Sometimes you get a poor season and you don't get uh, the pollination and you'll get the, the flowers and they look like they're going to set, but then uh, if they haven't been pollinated... Um, and I don't know. I just think that there's a, a stress factor there. Um, what kind of soils have you got them growing in? Is there a drainage problem or could they be overwatered or underwatered during summer? Possibly underwater during summer. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. I mean, a plant has got to build up a certain number of nutrients and hormones. And so initially um, it goes into growth mode. And if it's feeling happy, it sends out flowers. And then if it's got the, particularly the right kind of hormone balance, and this is usually a balance of all the right nutrients coming together, then those flowers will actually set fruit. And so if you've got the 
nutrition of the plant is tremendously important and then the factor is uh, does it have enough sunlight and I presume they're in full sun and then uh, the other factor is is it getting even watering and it's when you get uh, uh, moist soil it goes into growth mode and then the moisture is taken away it gets stressed and so that upsets the hormones responsible for setting fruit and so the fruit say, right, this is too difficult, we'll drop. So I think maybe if you could uh, uh, either put some kind of an irrigation system on or have a nice big moat around the plants um, and uh, make sure that when you water it, you get a nice deep watering and then you also mulch the plants, so keeping the plants cool, that also is another factor. Um, I think if you uh, just attend to its moisture needs and, and, and could attend to that, I would be... I'd uh, like to think that it's going to give you the fruits you're looking for. All right. Well, thank, thank you for that. Okay, thanks, Joy. I was just, sorry, I didn't mean to be inattentive there. I was just reading a text here from Cheryl Halakova's growing a coffee plant. And um, she's got a, it's flowering for the first time this year. I, yep. wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought the temperature or the climate in Adelaide would be right for growing a coffee plant. Well, you can have, grow a coffee plant. And the fact they're being sold by some uh, outlets, I won't say garden centres, some outlets yeah. sell coffee plants. And some of the specialist uh, garden centres do that, but they'll probably, uh, the person behind the counter will tell you how to look after it. They are certainly uh, need lots and lots and lots of warmth. Yeah. Um, and whether you'll go, uh, the, the likelihood of getting coffee from them is probably pretty low. Pretty slim. Uh, but uh, somebody will ring up and say, oh, look, I've done it, John. Yeah. Okay, well, that's flowering, so well done. Uh, and also someone says use the um, search image in Google on your phone to work out what the plant is. And I've only just realised I've got Google on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Spence. Yeah. Hey, now, can we come back to that question about um, if you see a sad-looking plant on a really hot day, uh, and I have done this, but I, I, I doubt whether or not it's wise, of actually hosing off the plant to try and cool it down a bit. Is that a wise thing to oh, do? Oh, absolutely. Uh, can I use my backyard uh, courtyard uh, as an example? It's a courtyard that gets most of it is in shade and part of it uh, gets sun in the middle of the day, gets shade on either side of the day. But uh, the plant, and I've got probably at least 200 plants growing in containers in a fairly small courtyard, and they're all shapes and sizes. And on days when the temperatures are going to be above 35, um, I hose them down. Now, if you take a look at the little water wands, most of the newer ones have got not just the shower setting, they've also got a misting session. Mm -hmm. And so put it on the misting uh, section and then just walk around your whole garden centre or your whole courtyard or whatever it might be and just hose them down or water them down, mist them down, I suppose, is the better word. Now, the important thing is you are cooling the leaves. You're not watering the plants. And the worst thing you can do on a hot day is allow lots of water to go into the container because you've probably got the container all nicely watered the night before. I'd like to think so. And if you are hosing them down with a shower rather than misting, water can get into the container and you end up with lots of water. And what that does is pushes all the air out of the potting mix and so the plant all of a sudden collapses. Mm. And it does that because it says, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in water. I don't have any enough air. So be careful that you don't overwater plants in containers during hot weather. 
and that's why watering them the day before, the night before is so important. It's got time for the moisture to sort of get into the root system, into the plant, and excess water drains away, and there's lots of air first thing in the morning. Now, on really hot days, I go out there probably, and I will hose them down or mist them down at least two or three times a day. And in very hot weather, those in the sun, people say you shouldn't mist or shower plants in full sun and I have done it time and time again and so long as uh, you just hose it down and let the, the leaves dry off very very quickly it cools the leaves down they look refreshed and it doesn't cause any damage. Okay so my, my concern is that the the droplets on the leaf before they evaporate, might get too hot yeah, well and almost boil. Th- yeah, that's the theory. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it depends on, on the leaves, but most of the leaves you'll find on a hot day and there's uh, water on the leaf. And if it's there more than five minutes afterwards, uh, I'd be surprised. It, it, it just disappears very, very quickly. So, right. And it, it, it's used to actually cool. And it's that evaporation of the water off the leaf that gives you that cool guardy effect. That, uh, that, that's the factor that, that cools the plant down. And a leaf that might be sitting in the sun, and uh, if you could take the temperature of the leaf, the leaf is probably around about 50 degrees. And, you know, it, it, it's in damage control. And if you can hose it down, the evaporative cooling effect drops that down to probably uh, into the 35s, and the plant is quite happy. Okay. Um, look, just before we talk to Marilyn Kershaw, um, a landscaper has contacted us with his go-to drought tolerant plant. Yes, uh, and I'm—I know I'm going to make a mess of this. Anis Odisia, Anis Odonia, Capensis Deo. Okay. <laughs> the- uh, is, is this a kind of landscaper, Jamie? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, he's one of our top landscapers, okay. and he has an extraordinary and knowledge he, of, of, of plants, uh, that, uh, particularly for the hills. How close was I? Uh, uh, say it again. A-N-I-S-O-D-O-N-T-I-A-C-A-P-E-N S-I-S, <laughs> Dio. Anis Adonis. No, no, not, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, well, uh, it's probably time I spoke to sort of Jamie on the program shortly, so I'll write that one down okay. and he can talk about that one in the future. All right, okay. <laughs> we'll talk with Meryl and Kushal right after this. This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Carolyn Kuschel is one of our top horticulturalists and she wears many horticultural hats. And, and this morning she's wearing the hat from the South Australian Mediterranean Garden Society. And, and Marilyn was actually one of the foundation members of this society. It's a brilliant society and they have uh, done uh, some wonderful studies and reviews of all the Mediterranean plants. So I thought most uh, appropriate that we talk to Marilyn about which are the plants that she and her members of the society have come up with that are the heat beaters in South Australia. Good morning to you, Marilyn, and welcome back to Talk back gardening. Thank you, John, and thank you for the opportunity because I'd love to tell you and your listeners that the best place to go and see some wonderfully tough, heat-loving plants is the Mediterranean Garden in the Adelaide Botanic Garden, which is just being in the process of being revitalised, replanted, and it's full of marvellous plants, far, far too many to list. Um, but it's looking really good and I think um, 
the best way to choose plants or to identify plants is to actually go to our botanic gardens because the collections are labelled. Aha, that's and most uh, important. <laughs> whereabouts, exactly. in, whereabouts in the Bataan is the Mediterranean garden? It's right in the centre um, on the northern side of the Museum of Economic Botany or the Schomburg Pavilion. So it's right in the centre of the garden. And uh, it was... It was planted out, um, or it was designed by Kate Callity, you know, over 15 years ago. Um, it was called the SA Water Mediterranean Garden because it was um, put in just after we had that millennium drought and SA Water was trying to encourage South Australian gardeners to grow plants that were suited to the climate and used less water. And um, But it, it was starting to look a bit overgrown and uh, so it's undergone this wonderful renovation. It's looking fabulous at the moment. Okay, and many people um, will know where that is simply because it's got those little rivers going down and the kids sort of get their leaves and run them down there. That's <laughs> right. Okay, look, that, that's a lovely suggestion. Uh, we need to take a look at your list, though. What are okay. the three players? What, what would you put at the top of your list or uh, close to the top? Well, that, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, there's all so many plants like grapevines and olives and pomegranates and almonds and quinces and mulberry trees and a lot of the plants that Brett um, mentioned, the rosemaries, lavenders, thyme, eremophilus, myopore and sedums. But, uh, you know, you asked me to limit it to four, which is a cruel thing to do. <laughs> um, but the Western Australian flowering gum is looking stunning at the moment all over, all over Adelaide and the Adelaide Hills and up in Blackwood, um, Carimbia fusifolia, the Western Australian flowering gum. And it is, it's got lots of the characteristics that we should be looking for in Mediterranean plants that will beat the heat. Tough, leathery leaves and uh, a good bark to keep the trunk cool. Um, and at this time of year, covered in red, orange or pink gum blossom, which the parrots and the lorikeets absolutely love. Okay. So it's great for um, attracting birds. So people know um, that one is a fairly large tree. Is there a sort of a, a smaller uh, size well, available? Absolutely. Kate Delaporte from the Waite Arboretum has spent years um, working on developing grafted, smaller, dwarfed varieties suitable for even the smallest gardens. So there's a lot of really good um, plants from very small to very large uh, available. When you say small, um, sort of one, uh, say two metres, under two metres? Yes, yes, really dwarf, yes, oh, yes, oh. really dwarf. I need to talk, but, to, I um, need to talk to Kate on the programme, I reckon. You should, because um, the Wait Arboretum is another wonderful destination for people to go and see trees that survive on Adelaide's rainfall, because they're not irrigated once they're established. So okay, okay. that's a Right, and, a third, and a third place, and I must put in a plug for the Watunga Botanic Garden because up at Blackwood on top of Shepherd's Hill Road, that is full of the plants from South Africa and from Australia, including South Australia. Um, and, of course, South Africa is another one of the Mediterranean climate regions along with South Australia and the Mediterranean Basin and um, California. Okay, and, um, now, now back to, to Mission Impossible. List number, item number two or plant number two. Well, the, the oleander, which was on your list. Now, there's a lot of people don't like oleanders because they're afraid of them because they think they're poisonous. I have to tell you, um, I've, there are almost no examples of death 
caused by uh, oleander and provided you use your brains and don't actually try eating the leaves or sucking the sap. And oleanders are wonderful summer flowering tough plants. They've got tough leaves and smothered in pink, white or cherry red blossoms at this time of year and in fact flower for about three to four months over summer. So uh, oleanders can be treated as a large shrub or trimmed to a medium-sized shrub, or they can be trained up on a single stem to create a, a shady tree. So they're very um, versatile. So look again at the oleanders if you if you um, ha- uh, have been afraid of them. Don't be afraid. Just wear your gloves when you're pruning them. Okay. As you mentioned before, that was on the 2014 list. It's still there. Yeah. Okay, number three. Right. Number three. Uh, the Syrian hibiscus, Hibiscus syriacus, which Ooh. is a deciduous shrub yes. from, from Mediterranean regions, and it has lovely light, bright green leaves, and in summer, from now right through to, you know, April, May, it has lovely mauvey or blue hibiscus-type flowers, unlike our big ornamental hibiscus, they don't close up at night, they stay open. There are also some come in white and and pink but the bluey mauve one is everyone's favorite it's a beautiful thing it's quite often used in the very small street trees in in mediterranean climates it can ter- certainly take the heat and once again it can be kept as a trimmed shrub or it can be trained up as a standard or trained up on a a single trunk to make a small shady tree suitable for courtyards. Okay, and being so, uh, deciduous, probably it would be suitable for frost areas? Uh, yes, yes it is. I mean, it grows beautifully in the hills as well as <laughs> on the plains. So okay. um, a lovely plant, and it's in flower just now. Um, it we, does need... It probably does need a little bit of water after an extended dry period. But um, it, it's a wonderful heat-beating plant, and I think the cool blue of its blossoms make it very attractive for most gardens. All right, we're now to do very quickly number four. Yep. Well, huge topic, salvias. Um, there are literally hundreds of salvias available, but be careful because not all salvias are created equally and not all of them are suitable for the heat. Look for the ones that have got the tiny leaves and the wooden stems rather than the soft stems. So the little shrubby salvias, and often with grey-green leaves, and often with very strong aromatic foliage. And one of my favourites is the Californian salvia clevelandii, or the Cleveland sage, and it's got grey-green leaves and lovely soft bluey mauve flowers right from now through to autumn, and it makes a beautiful... Um, shrub and there are a lot of other really good salvias from South Africa which of course has a climate similar to ours Um, but do watch out because some of the most spectacularly flowering salvias are not um, heat tolerant All right. so Um, there's your your four a flowering gum, an oleander Syrian hibiscus and uh, selected salvias and I'm just conscious that the South Australian uh, Mediterranean Garden Society put together a little booklet, is that still available and if it is, where can people get get, where where from well, if if you're going in to look at the Mediterranean Garden in the Botanic Gardens, the digger's shop is right there in the centre and the digger's shop has it um, available 
Or, of course, members of the Mediterranean Garden Society can get it through the society meetings. Okay, and uh, I think we need to sort of say thank you very much for your contributions. I'm just conscious of the time there, Spence. Uh, do we need to finish at 9 o'clock? Or well, we, before we, we do have some, that, that, that immovable beast at 9 o'clock, that thing that starts with a very familiar theme. So, so, so thank you very much, uh, uh, Meryl and Kushal, for your contribution. Yeah, um, like Spence, I'm trying to get used to the sort of the different kind of a program. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, but sorry, you had something to say? I was just been puzzling over Spencer's shrub. Perhaps he's thinking of an Indian hawthorn, Raphiolepis, which has a little pink flower. That's not helping, Marilyn. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it could well be, could though. Be. I'd certainly put that on the list of heat beaters, yeah. uh, Raphiolepis. If you go around uh, uh, the uh, places that sell hot dogs and you know chickens and uh, those kind of things, they're often sort of, uh, they have roses and, and they have Raphiolepsis, uh, and they're those little plants that just flower and flower and flower right through summer. Do they come up with a little, um, little, little blackberry, little blackberry on, them? on them? That's it. it. Raphaelipsis is one. Marilyn, you've solved it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Marilyn. (laughs) Okay, see you, Marilyn. Okay, bye for now. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Five past nine is the time. A lot of people have been waiting very patiently while we spoke with uh, Marilyn Kushel before the news at nine, so we should try and get into these calls as quickly as we can. And there's some lines free at the moment too. one 391 is the number to call. At six past nine, let's go to Brighton South, and John's been waiting very patiently. Hello, John. Morning. How are you, guys? Good, thank you. What was your question for John? Uh, I've just pulled out the apple cucumber um, plants because they've just all died off and I'm just wondering what would be a good um, good veggie to plant this time of year well you could plant more cucumbers and zucchinis and uh, uh, probably a lot more tomatoes um, and I think that uh, not too late to plant tomatoes oh absolutely not unless you're in the hills but I mean at Brighton South uh, mm. in fact uh, in Next, the first Saturday of the month when Darren Ray gives his climate, his three-month weather outlook, I think he'll be saying we're in for an Indian summer. Uh, it, temperatures will sort of not be heat wavy, and so it means if you put tomatoes in, they're not going to get uh, burnt off in, in the first two or three weeks. And if you can get them established, it just means that we get relatively warm to mild weather that will go through March and probably well into April, uh, I will be advocating people that uh, they consider a second crop of summer vegetables. Mm. And basically all the crops, all the things that you grow in summer, okay, uh, there are a few exceptions. I wouldn't be putting tomatoes and the, the kirkabit type things. They take a long time to mature. And unless you've got the quick uh, maturing sweet corn, I wouldn't be growing that. But uh, most of the other veggies, I think you've got the whole palette out there. It's a matter of what you like growing there, I think, John. Ah, do, do apple cucumbers tend to um, uh, take a lot of the nutrition out of the soil? Do they no, need to? No, they okay? no, no, I mean, if you wanted to sort of put them back in the same area, it would be important to uh, improve the soil, dig it over into about 20 centimetres, add a little bit of good compost, good quality compost, not semi-mature compost, otherwise you'll run into uh, too much moisture in the soil, but good compost compost and just a little bit of uh, an organic fertiliser and away you go. John, the world is your oyster. Enjoy. 
<laughs> Thank you. See you, mate. Uh, to Port Augusta. Hello, Robin. Hi. Um, this is just about my lemon tree, my Maya lemon tree that's in um, in a pot. It's got blossom on it. It's got what blossom on it. Why is that strange, <laughs> Robin? Uh, lemon... Well, at this time of the year, it's summer. They don't usually do that. Oh, well, you'll find that lemons in particular will flower virtually any time through the year. It's one of the great things about lemons. If you observe, if you take a look at where the flowers are, they're on the end of little small branches. And actually, the more small branches you get, the more flowers you get. So many people, uh, they've got their lemon tree, it's nicely established, and they keep on probably every uh, uh, two months, they'd get out there and, and just thin or cut back the longest branches. There might be a, a branch, uh, lots of little branches, side branches that are about 40 centimetres long, chop them in half, and what happens is you get two little small branches growing from, uh, from below the cut. And, of course, those two little branches will have flowers on them and have lemons on them. And if you trim your lemon tree uh, every couple of months throughout the year, you'll have lemons throughout the year. Mm. Uh, the lemon tree doesn't really mind. It doesn't sort of say, OK, it's spring, I'll put some flowers on. But uh, if you cut back and the right kind of conditions, and I'm feeling good because I've got plenty of moisture and, and, and nutrition, I'll produce my lemons all year round. Even Myers. Oh, yeah, particularly Myers. Huh? Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Oh, probably the Lisbon would be better than it. The Myers are sort of, yeah, you're right. That they, they tend to sort of have um, more in spring and more in autumn. But, I mean, if you keep on manipulating them, that principle works. Huh? Enjoy your lemons, Robin. Do I need to feed the tree? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. The concept of putting on fertiliser, a small quantity of fertiliser once a month, the beginning of each month, give them a couple of handfuls, uh, depending on the size of the tree, of a good quality fertiliser uh, for an, an organic one would be good uh, for that's uh, blended or manufactured for fruit trees. It has a little bit of extra potash in it. And uh, that's important in terms of getting the... Once you've got the flowers, you need the flowers to set and produce fruit and potash is involved with that process. Good luck with that, Robin. Thank you. To Windsor Gardens now at um, 10 past nine here on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Uh, and Andre's on the phone. Hello, Andre. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. I just happen to be the world's best breeder of white flies. <laughs> <laughs> I see, white flies. And, and what are they uh, congregating on there, uh, Andrew? Well, they're on my tomatoes, on my spring beans, um, and anywhere else they can go. So you've got uh, lots of veggies growing, and presumably it's relatively sheltered or shady? Oh, it's relatively sheltered, not shady. Well, a little bit, yeah, shady. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, what have you done to try and control them? Till now, nothing. I was hoping that the right. natural predator would get them, but uh, the natural predator has got a little strike. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. There is a little predator out there that's very, very effective in controlling them. But sometimes they get out of control and you need to bring the population down. And once you've done that, you've achieved that, uh, the predators will actually keep them under control. Um, perhaps uh, one other question, I suppose, is uh, are they doing any damage? They're out there flying around uh, looking like they're a bit of a nuisance, but are they doing any damage? On my string beans, I I would think, but I don't think they're doing any damage on the tomatoes. 
No, that's right. And often <laughs> they're there. And so uh, if they're not doing any damage, why, why uh, uh, disturb what's going on? Um, I think it's probably uh, get used to the fact that there are the white flies, but the white flies have a, a, a juvenile stage or an overwintering or a, a, a life cycle. And if you take a look on the backs of the leaves, you'll find lots of little opaque like scales. And if the backs of the leaves of your tomatoes and beans have got lots of those on them, it would be important to do something because those little, uh, they're little sap-sucking insects and they sort of turn into the white flies later on, but uh, they are sucking sap out of the leaves and they need to be controlled. And the best thing to do is if you've got lots of white flies uh, or juvenile or um, baby uh, white flies on the backs of the leaves, is pick your leaves and get rid of them. Um, so that will reduce your population no end, no end. If that doesn't control the problem, then probably uh, uh, I think a horticultural oil is probably very, very effective, or eco-oil or uh, pest oil. And if you put on a spray and follow that up probably uh, about a week later or maybe two weeks later with a follow-up spray, that should reduce the population. Then you should be able to say, righto, predators, take over. See you later. Hey, uh, Andre, good luck with that. At um, 13 past nine here on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Kate's in the Adelaide Hills. Hello, Kate. The fruit on them at that stage was the fruit fully formed, or was it? Uh, uh, is it a, a late uh, maturing mulberry? Well, it's fairly late because we're. It's a reasonably um, shady backyard, and we're in Nan, so it's not the warmest uh, <laughs> climate. When, um, when, when would like, you normally pick your mulberries? Well, I reckon it was around um, maybe this time of year or. February, yeah. March, okay. last right year. Up. Well, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think it's too late, she cried. Mm. Uh, yeah, you'll find that uh, it's got a process that it has to go through to actually uh, uh, to flower and, and produce the fruit, and that happens many, many months before. Sometimes uh, your vine growers will find that if you get uh, your vines come out into new growth and you get an early frost, they come into new growth and you'll still get uh, uh, fruits uh, formed, uh, bunches of fruits formed. Uh, formed but i think in this situation you've got a tree that uh, has passed that stage and it's got new growth i think it's just important to uh, try and uh, look after that growth uh, try and work out if the new branches the strong new branches are growing towards the center thin it out so that you want to maintain the original shape of the tree 
And if you're getting very, very strong growth, don't be afraid to cut it back. So something that might be over a metre long, I'd be cutting that back by about a third. So go for shape and go for fruit next year. It would be important, I think, to give the tree a good... It's got good growth, but make sure that there's a bit of nutrition there as well. I'd be getting a good organic fertiliser for fruit and spreading that underneath the drip ring of the tree and watering that in. And if you do that, that should set it up for next season. But I'm afraid mulberries for this season, you might have to go and buy them, I think, if you really enjoy your mulberries. Sounds like time to sharpen the secateurs, Kate. Last year was the first time it had really fruited properly, and it was absolutely amazing. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Okay, just bear in mind that uh, be careful you'll have a heavy crop one year and it could go into biennial bearing and if you have a very heavy crop set uh, and you can see that there's a lot of uh, fruit going to be set, don't be afraid to thin the bunches. Get your secateurs out and uh, when the bunches are very close together, just thin them out. You'll end up with uh, the same quantity of fruit in terms of uh, there'll be a fewer fruit but they'll be bigger and taste better but it'll also mean that you'll get some fruit in the following season. Good luck Kate, thank you to Windsor Gardens now. Russell's been waiting patiently as well at 17 past nine. Morning Russell. Thanks Spence. What's the problem there Russell? Um, Got an ornamental pear that um, is 15 to 20 years old. Um, Not looking too flash but um, it's sending up dozens of um, suckers from the roots is this an indication that it's on the way out no well a sucker lots of suckers means that the tree has indicated to you that it's not happy there's something that's stressing the plant and the fact that the plant doesn't look good it looks sick is your first indicator. Uh, Suckers, lots of suckers, is another Monty to say the tree is unhappy. Most important is uh, your first opportunity cool spell is to remove every sucker and cut them off as close as you possibly can to the main trunk. Uh, And uh, that will uh, mean that any energy that was going into the suckers goes back into the tree and that will improve the tree itself. Then you need to say, why is it stressed? And for an ornamental pear to be stressed, (laughs) you must be doing something pretty tough to it, I reckon there, Russell. Are you uh, ignoring it in terms of water and have you fed it in 15 years? Um, no, it uh, gets a, um, a drip water every week like the rest of the garden gets. Um, yeah, I haven't fed it. Um, uh, right, after 15 years, it would have had a fairly a vigorous root system uh, producing lots of nice leaves and branches and it would have probably used up much of the nutrients around uh, its root system. So rep- repay it by putting on a good quality, probably organic fertiliser for fruit trees would be ideal. Um, and you're saying uh, you're using a drip system and you're using that on the whole garden. How, what kind of drippers and how long do the drippers run for? <laughs> John, uh, it's been that way for about 20 years and most things have survived pretty well. Yeah, okay. Well, I think that's the big problem and that gives uh, uh, drip irrigation a bad name because uh, most of those old drippers from 15 years ago put out, say, 15 litres of water an hour. So you put the system on for half an hour and you've only got a couple of litres of water uh, going onto your plant and all you're doing is watering the surface. It evaporates very, very quickly and if you're wondering... 
while your garden's not sort of growing and thriving, that's probably the reason. If you're going to use a drip irrigation system, work out how much comes out of the dripper and you need to say, righto, if it's a rose, it needs 20 litres of water. If it's a fruit tree, it needs 40 litres of water. But if you think of how much does a plant need in terms of watering, then you can work out how long you need to leave the drippers on uh, and, and operate that way. But, you know, having given you the mini lecture on ornamental fertilizer on uh, drip irrigation, I just sort of think that probably you need to sort of uh, water your ornamental pear and I would be getting to the habit of giving at least 50 litres of water once a month during summer and maybe uh, to start off I'd be putting on maybe 100 litres of water for the next two months and fertilising it and uh, getting it back into reasonable growth and then next season, monthly, once uh, a month, give it its 40 litres or 50 litres of water and also at least in autumn and in springtime, giving up some fertiliser. Uh, Russell, thank you. Look, we're going to go to, um, to Chris Hall shortly, who, who has his um, drought-tolerant plants for us. But we might just quickly squeeze in a call from Phil from Clarendon. G'day, Phil. Hello, Hello Phil. Hello, Phil. Yes, yes, John. Yeah, what's the problem? I'm here. Uh, I've got a My Lemon too, the same as the other lady was saying, in, in the ground. And um, just the last couple of hot days, all the leaves just curled up the crops just stagnant, I think. They look a bit burnt. And they're all about 40 millimetres or 50 millimetres, not even 50 mil. There's probably 50 lemons on for the next season. And uh, it's looking very sad. What should I do? So it's, it's gone into wilt mode, has it? Yes. Does it look like so. it's going to survive? Uh, well, that's what you uh, want to know. Tell me what I've got to do. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we've got to figure he, out. He's what, hoping he, you can help him with uh, that, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what on earth have you done to sort of doing that? So how old is the tree? I've just been watering it regularly. We've always had crops off it. It's been in the same place for about five or six years. Been very faithful to us. But now I think it's overloaded. I think I should take all those... Uh, little baby lemons off. Well, that's the first thing you should do is every lemon, if it's, if it's gone into wilt mode, yeah, you remove the crops and so that you need to get it back into action. Um, have you, is there root competition close to it? Not really. No? no. Okay. Is it mulched? Uh, no. No, no, no. just... All right. Well, I think uh, uh, without uh, taking too much time, uh, uh, it's what's going on in the soil. It's presumably uh, gone from wet, dry, wet, dry, or else it had too long a period of stress because it, it hasn't dried. Uh, it's dried out, or it could be that you're putting on too much water, and you're and often people sort of water, and you think I'm watering it often, but they're not putting on enough water, and all you're doing is watering the top. Uh, five centimetres of soil, whereas most of the root system on a lemon tree is at the five to probably 25 centimetre layer. That's where you should be putting the water. And if you put the water on in that area where the root system is be, or should be, then you'll have probably better chances of having a healthy lemon. So I think you need to look at how it's watered, how often it's watered, and also uh, make sure that you give it fertiliser at least once a month once you've got it back into ground. Yeah, good luck with that, Phil. Um, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can do it. I'm confident. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. 
Chris Hall is a foundation member of the Barossa Bush Garden, and he's also author of the publication Wild Barossa. And Chris is a wonderful uh, uh, person in terms of Australian plants, and we spoke to him last time out at Mawson Lakes at an outside broadcast when there was a fun run on. But uh, welcome back to Talkback Gardening, Chris. Thanks for inviting me back for this um, really hot topic, John. Well, Looking interest, forward to it. Yeah, interest in, in Australian plants is certainly growing steadily, and I think many people want to put natives out there on uh, Australian plants out on their verge, and we might come to that. But let's take a look at heat-beating plants. Uh, time's going to beat us, uh, Chris, so we need to be pretty quick on this one. Uh, your three plants, what would you put uh, as your top of your three plants that uh, you're going to take a look at? Well, I picked out some shrubs, ground covers and small trees, so we'll try and squeeze that into three. But I'm thinking they all come from Adelaide or further north out of the arid lands. And my absolute wow factor flagship is the genus Eremophilus. So if you go to your nursery listeners, um, they'll all have Eremophilus. But my particular favourite is a, a glabra subspecies called glabra carnosa with orange to red flowers. Eremophila by, uh, in the Greek means uh, desert loving. So that's what Eremophila means. So it gives you an idea how tough they are. They die if you give them too much water. So they're used to about 250 mils of rainfall a year. So other favourites of mine are Maculata with the deep red flowers, uh, Calahabdos, which are tall and skinny with pink flowers. Um, at, you can just go to the nursery and find lots and lots of species. But um, that's my first one. Okay, um, well, just just, in, re- just repeating those. Yep. That's Eremophila, Eremophila, and particularly Glabra and Maculata, and certainly most garden yep. centres would have both of those. Wonderful yep. plants and uh, certainly very, yep. very drought tolerant. Okay, yeah, your second one? Yep. Uh, well, then I'm going to squeeze in in the shrubs, which I thought of as feature plants, because when I get to the ground covers, I'm thinking of the ground covers as infill plants. So I'm thinking of your design of your road verge or your garden. Yes. Ground covers might cover the mass and you know, smothercate all the weeds right, and kill them off. But uh, in terms of the feature of plants that you might want to put into your road verge to, as a feature of mass plant, uh, put in three or four or five, don't just put in one. A senna's, uh, a dodonia and an alaria, if I can squeeze in three. Okay, so tell senna, us about the alaria, a daisy bush. Alaria. I think many people would, might like yeah. that one. Yeah, showy daisy bush, uh, less than a metre, uh, very tarpery really long-lasting, masses of white flowers in spring and I love the light blue grey foliage like it's a light grey but they call it blue almost and beautifully um, I love the aroma every time you walk past it or if you squeeze the leaves together uh, aromatic and pleasant uh, taste um, not taste well you you can taste it too but um, a smell okay and and, and so uh, there are a number of plants which are called daisy bushes so uh, oleria is it o-l-e-a-r-i-a oleria i think is the spelling of that one oleria Yep. That's right, you got it right. Okay. Uh, Pimelioides is the subspecies. Aleria Pimelioides, P-I-M-E-L-I-O-I-D-E-S. All right, now tell us about the hop bush. There's a dodonia, you know, can get bushy. The traditional dodoneas can get bushy. This is a subspecies which is found north of the Barossa. Bush gardens have got it, Barossa bush gardens at Nuri. Dodonia microzyga. Microzyga. Micro, M-I-C-R-O, Z-Y-G-A called the brilliant hotbush. Why I love it, I've got it in my garden, it's uh, masses of burgundy-coloured seed pods and stems for months, months and months. Um, and it's really compact. It's only about to a metre, a bit more than a metre, uh, a metre and a half. But um, I love that one. And it's tough as boots. Dodonia is a really tough. Okay, and that's... then the final one... 
<laughs> no, I was yeah. going to say, uh, from time point of view, uh, give us three, uh, a couple of ground covers. I think it's uh, most important covers. we look at those. Yeah. As I said, I'm thinking of them as infill. I don't see them so much as a feature plant. I'd put those plants that I just mentioned in as your feature plants. Yes. Like plant more than one of them. But your ground covers, I picked Myoporum parvifolium, which would be well known to lots of people, the creeping boobiella. Yes. The deep green foliage and uh, bright green foliage with white, small white flowers. That's really tough. And um, the other one is saltbush. I'll just mention the common names of the saltbush, particularly ruby saltbush. Any nursery will will know the common names of them. Ruby saltbush, but it occurs as a shrub, but it also occurs as a prostate form. So if you want a mass just at ground level, put in after the prostate form of ruby saltbush, that's Enkelina. It's tough as, you know, that's grown on north-facing rocky hillsides up in the Barossa, you know, that... um, hasn't had a drink in three years and, um, you know, it still shines through. So it's um, it's really tough. Uh, you've also got nodding saltbush, which will grow right at the base of a tree. Not much will grow right at the base of a tree, but the nodding saltbush will. You've also got um, Rigodia, uh, the fragrant saltbush, uh, Rigodia parabolica, uh, which is really tough as well. All right, and all of these plants, are, uh, they're available from the Barossa Bush Garden. You'd probably get them at State Flora as well? Uh, certainly, and of course the Outland Botanic Garden up in uh, up in Port Augusta as well, but uh, um, up there. And also um, a plug, please, for the, the environment centres around the state, around the region. The nine environment centres um, um, have got uh, the book, Adelaide Gardens, a planting guide, and there's also a coastal gardens planting guide. So these are little A5 booklets which show you the common plants which are really tough in Australian gardens, in Adelaide Gardens, mm. And it shows you the weeds which you should pull out, the gazanias and things like that as well. It's what not to plant and what to plant. So okay. uh, those planting guides are available from the um, environment centres, the nine environment centres, of which the bush gardens is one, going right down as far as Normanville and Wollonga and through the Adelaide region, including, you know, um, including the joinery, etc. Oh, Chris Hall, wonderful knowledge on Australian plants, and certainly we'll get Chris back, uh, particularly talking about establishing verge gardens and the use of Australian garden uh, native plants, uh, and I think uh, uh, that will be welcome from a, a gardener's point of view. Um, now, Spence, next week we'll be talking about the fruit harvest, and, and, and until then, perhaps I should say, good gardening. <laughs>